Well, welcome. This is episode 29, would you believe, of The Professor and the Hack. The Feels prof- good not to be in our 30s yet, Hugh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the days, the days. that. Are, and can I just say that I, it's so good that you're getting the Christmas spirit, and I think that uh, Christmas sweater that you're wearing is particularly attractive. Those, <laughs> I love your hat. Those reds and greens. You know, I've, I've never seen someone in a podcast wear a court jester hat before, but that's amazing. <laughs> I think it's my dunce hat, actually. But um, uh, look, you know, Josh Frydenberg is... Um, the treasurer of Australia, and he's delivered something. He's delivered the confirmation of the economy, uh, as he would perceive it, uh, meeting a key target. That's it, my EFO, uh, which is it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? My EFO, the mid-year fiscal update, but of course it's mid-financial year, which for the rest of us is the end of the year, which is what we think of now as being as we count down to Christmas and New Year. But it, it hasn't told us anything especially new in terms of the big picture here. The big picture for the government is getting back to surplus come May because that's the promised date for the surplus. We've had my EFOs before and, and budget updates at different points in time which have shown the, the greater likelihood of getting back to surplus. And we almost got there for the previous financial year when the ultimate results came in. We were only literally a matter of hundreds of millions short of a surplus, which in a trillion-dollar economy is very, very close. Now, what do we know? Well, we know what we already knew. We know that come May next year, the plan, and as well as the expectations, as well as where the mud map economically has us, all points towards one thing, and that is a surplus. Now, the thing that's more interesting to me is not so much whether the Treasurer gets to tick that box and finally hand down a surplus come May. It's whether the actuals that follow in the months to come confirm it, because we know that that can change. Or more significantly, do we have repeat surpluses? Is that the plural for surplus? Yeah, supply. I supply. <laughs> if we, do, we supply. Have, do we have a number of surpluses in a row? Because that's a different discussion, because... They've had this as a benchmark to get there. The election was key to it and they promised it and they're now on track to deliver it. But where the economy is at with some of the wobbles around growth and retail spending, and we'll know more on the other side of Christmas, do they have longer-term delivery of surplus? Because that's the only thing that matters as far as debt goes. We've had an accumulation of debt. It's not too high, but it is much higher than it ever used to be. To bring debt down, one surplus is nowhere near enough. It becomes the equivalent of what John Howard once called five minutes of economic sunshine when he took on Paul Keating. So that's where we're looking, or that's at least where I'm looking, is is the longer term. But my EFO hasn't shed really much light on that. That's something that will take the rest of this term of government. And they're caught in a bind there because uh, too many surpluses, they have one uh, uh, positive in terms of being able to sell your economic management, but uh, against that goes the argument we've had before is are you choking out uh, life out of the economy? Well, the economy remains, if you like, the quiet issue, I think, for Australians, Uh, the anxieties over wages, over future prospects. So the economy is there on the quiet side of the ledger, but the noisy side remains climate change. And we've seen some interesting... Uh, shifts, I think, within liberal politics in particular in New South Wales with the Environment Minister in New South Wales, Matt Keane, coming out and being very, very explicit, saying he's got cabinet uh, support for the position Mm. that uh, there is no question that uh, a warming planet is affecting the fires, the drought, and therefore the smoke that uh, has totally cloaked Sydney in recent times. Fascinating context to this. I mean, the context for a lot of people around the rest of the country would be who is Matt Keane, obviously, being a state environment minister. In fact, a lot of people in New South Wales might ask the question, who is Matt Keane? Uh, Background of him is not only is he one of the senior ministers in the New South Wales government, but he's very importantly one of the senior power brokers within the New South Wales Liberal Party. 
Now, the reason that's relevant is because him coming out and saying this is not just a statement on climate change, which is what most people hear and and think about. It's also not just him as the Environment Minister trying to make a point on behalf of the New South Wales government or indeed as part of the epicentre of that New South Wales government dealing with fires, drought and, of course, that massive uh, smoke haze over Sydney that, that has lasted almost the feeling of endlessly. It's also a power play within the Liberal Party because we've had loud voices from the conservative side of the party for some time now arguing that climate change, even if real, is not significant from a human-induced perspective or indeed does not have links direct or even some would argue indirect uh, when it comes to the fires as well. The statement, the line in the sand that Matt Keane is putting down is one not just by some renegade minister, but it is by a real New South Wales Liberal Party power broker. And that's a message, quite apart from the policy script, that's a message that I think is going to be interesting to see how it bounces back and forth between the state government and the feds, but also between the prime minister uh, and this power play within or power broker within the Liberal Party. And interesting that he was saying that uh, this is Cabinet's position. So he, this is plainly, he doesn't want to be isolated, he's, and he doesn't want to be seen as a freelancer out there, you know, because you get picked off very quickly within Liberal Party politics. So I think that shift is real enough. It's been interesting enough to see uh, the reaction, particularly uh, the Murdoch Press part of your many employers, uh, <laughs> but through the Daily Telegraph, the biggest selling newspaper in New South Wales, and also the Australian have had good cracks at him. The Daily Telegraph, you know, pretending, you know, sort of. Reporting that he is a pretend uh, supporter of rural firefighters that he volunteered but hasn't gone out and fought a real fire, you know all this sort of stuff. That's this element of of snarkiness because mm. he's dared to break with the traditional orthodoxy. Yeah, it, look, often uh, the forces that unite against uh, any links between direct links, in particular between uh, fires and climate change, can sometimes be robust. Uh, and there have been some pretty personal hits at Matt Keane since he's come out in the position that he did. I personally think it's great uh, to see somebody prepared in that role with that power broker role within the Liberal Party to be so strong. Uh, but then I also think it's equally important that he has also given himself the cover of saying this is a cabinet position. Uh, we'll see if cabinet shifts on that and tries to isolate him. But he is a powerful figure, you know, within the Liberal Party, even if he's not that well-known a figure, and he's a little bit younger as well. Uh, but he he has clout, and he's not alone uh, within Liberal circles. This is one of the things that I think well, is an well, interesting discussion point from here. Sure, because Gladys Berejiklian was one of those who, as the fires first got up to those unprecedented conditions and they first started to set the day of across New South Wales, 17 fires at emergency warnings, and this is where she trotted out the line, uh, that now's not the time to talk about climate change. And and she repeated that line. So what's happening within the New South Wales government here? Well, well, she, is she, she being dudded by Keane or is she, do you think, uh, given as a cabinet decision, it would be unusual for a cabinet to roll a premier? Well, there's a lot of speculation that Keane wants to be deputy Liberal leader in New South Wales, but his only pathway as, as someone on the more moderate side of the party to do that would be to support someone like Dominic Perrottet, the treasurer, who's a right-winger. So what he does or doesn't say in this sphere will be interesting. Gladys comes from the same side of the party uh, as Matt Keane, but has to be wary about him, A, as a power broker, but B, as a power broker who can shift numbers that naturally fall on her side of the factional divide behind someone else if he's making a crack as deputy. That's all the you know weed stuff, though, that goes on behind the scenes. 
On this particular issue, I think, yes, Gladys probably came out early and too hard saying let's not talk about climate change in the midst of the fires because she thought that's what some conservative forces wanted to hear and she had upset them on a range of things, including the abortion debate in New South Wales, for example. So she was trying to keep... Are talking Alan Jones and Ray Hadley on yeah, that? Well, yeah, whether it's as direct as them or whether it's uh, people in Parliament that tend to agree with them about things, I, I think she was worried about how that might be perceived, absolutely. Matt Keane, though, you know, he's just absolutely gone at the vanguard on this issue and been prepared to say what he says. I think in her private moments, Gladys is more likely to agree with Matt Keane than the other side of the spectrum. But, of course, she has come out and said what she said. We've talked about this before, Hugh. If you can't talk about climate change in the midst of fires or drought or whatever, well, guess what? Where we're at now, because of the links between climate change, drought and fires, you're never going to be able to talk about climate change, are you? Because we're always going to be in drought. We're always on fire now. Be careful what you say, of course, because big rains will come, Peter. Well, they they come, but they're very limited. I mean, yes, this is the land of floods and drought and all mm. the rest of it, but the science also tells us that it is getting hotter. The science also tells us that droughts are lasting longer, that the fires are starting earlier. And there's always an exception to that rule, but it's the science that tells us that there are direct links there. You know what frustrates me the most on this? I'm no climate change zealot. I'm not even sure that action to stop climate change is even worth bothering with, with the level of global emissions that are likely to happen from developing countries. I'm interested in adaptation and trying to prepare for it as much as I am in trying to prevent it, just as a, if you like, as a pragmatic reality. So I'm certainly no zealot on climate change action, but I'm also not an idiot. I acknowledge that the science says that it's happening, so we need to prepare for that and be ready for it. Fighting fires or planning for drought falls into that spectre of adaptation, if you ask me. And to deny the links, even well, certainly indirect links, but to deny direct links as well, these, you know, this argument that you see trotted out from time to time by people, which is, oh, well, you know, an arsonist started this fire, ipso facto, it's not climate change. How stupid is that? I mean, sure, an arsonist might start a fire, but the reason the fire becomes a raging hundreds of thousands of hectares going off that can't be controlled by the best in the business is because it is so dry because of the effects of, amongst other things, absolutely climate change. So if this shift seems to be now happening within the New South Wales government, or certainly these views are being expressed, what does that make that awkward for Scott Morrison? In a word, yes, uh, but to look at it a bit more in a more complicated way, he's always been careful with his rhetoric on this, I think. Uh, deliberately so. So he, he shifts he, by baby steps, doesn't he? He does, and so as a result, as it's you sort of become as the listener, you're at risk of becoming like the boiling frog. You know, the water wasn't that hot when I jumped in and started listening to what he had to say. You know, he wasn't all the way out on the other side at 100 degrees. So why not? Let's have a dip in and have a listen to what he's got to say. Before you know it, you're boiling because he's shifted. This is... But that's, that's a good political technique, isn't it? Oh, it is. And that's, that's in fact, the kind of skill that is likely to give him longevity in the job. Yeah, and it's the kind of skill that, it, look, it, I think it is likely to give him longevity in the job, but with some risks because we can go back and track the shift from start to finish and even though there were baby steps along the way, you can then see the seismic difference between where he started versus where he ended up. But absolutely it's better than just suddenly flipping almost Tony Abbott style. If you remember his prime ministership, he'd say one thing and then the next thing he knew he was running another line. He used to do that on climate change as well. I always found it interesting that he decided to become a zealot on that. But that's another topic. The prime minister... Very interesting. He was always very careful not to deny the links 
between climate change and the bushfires, but very careful not to amplify them and thus upset upset some of the shock jocks of course, along the way. He'd shift the, the conversation to something else. Exactly. Smart. So what are the difficulties? If, if we're hearing this from the New South Wales Liberals, uh, that the links between climate change and all the things we're seeing are real mm. and need to be addressed. How does that make things for Anthony Albanese, who at this time of high <laughs> fire danger, and and it's not fire danger, the fires are all blazing around the joint, decides to go off and cosy up to coal communities? Yeah, well, he, he's trying to go the other way, isn't he? He's trying to prove, and he would argue, we're big believers in climate change, but we're also pragmatic, and this is his argument, Coal is something that we might as well, we've talked about this before, we might as well export it because it'll be dirtier coal being mined elsewhere in the world and we won't get the economic advantages Does either. Does that work though? Oh, look, I don't think it works with climate change activists, but I don't see a climate change activist on their compulsory preferential voting giving it to Scott Morrison ahead of Anthony Albanese further down the ticket anyway. So, so, so as a calculation, we have touched on this mm. before, but as a calculation, uh, it, these guys are smart people who know what they're doing. Well, he's got to do, he's got to do it, Anthony Albanese. I mean, here because they they can't win with again. We've talked about this. They can't win elections without coal mining communities on the way through, or they will win them fewer and far between uh, if they don't bring those people across. It's, it's funny about coal mining communities because on Matt Canavan's own numbers, there are forty four thousand jobs in the country in the coal mining industry. They're well paid jobs, uh, but that is half of one electorate. Yeah, but it's the communities that they support as well, you know, and and far north Queensland is an unusual area. It's not just direct links to coal mining communities. It's also the broader ideological cynicism about inner city activism uh, and it's also just the natural attitude of those regional communities to another to a host of other issues that Labor does tend to be on the progressive side of politics about. So Anthony Albanese, who does have good bloke status in the minds of voters according to polls, he's trying to build off that good bloke status to visit these communities to say, look, I'm no inner city activist, even though, of course, that is his past. So it's, it's interesting to watch him trying to do that. Queensland is the key here. It's interesting that he's doing this four-day tour through Queensland, even though he has visited WA. Queensland's the more important one. For them, absolutely. Not only there are a lot more seats there, but in WA they tend to swing wildly, but they're mostly city seats, even though it's the biggest state geographically. In Queensland, there are the most number of regional seats. You know, those numbers you're talking about directing coal mining communities, yes, small of themselves, but North Queensland is so unusual by Australian standards for the number of electorates that are that are up there. And if you lose one, you tend to lose them all. Uh, and Bill Shortnikos, of course, basically lost them all. Let's take a brief break. I want to get your views on Brexit, the Boris boil over when he got there, uh, but we'll, we'll come back in 30 seconds. Stick with us. Hi there, I'm Sandra Sully. At 10 Daily, we pride ourselves on delivering great stories about the things that matter, from the biggest news of the day right through to what's clicking, what's hot, what's happening now. We have it all covered. 10daily.com.au Welcome back to part two of episode 29. It's hard to keep all these numbers in my head, but I can tell you, uh, PVO, that uh, Boris Johnson has got the numbers he wanted and he's the Prime Minister for... They've got five-year terms. We're going to be seeing a lot of that here. Talk about the lesser of evils, Hugh. I mean, we we, we thought we were in the midst of a lesser of evil election in May between Scott Morrison and Bill Shorten. My God, imagine having to choose between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris, of all people. But in the end, it looks like, you know, for, for most Britons... 
uh, there was no choice to be made. You know, they <laughs> it was actually very similar uh, to what happened in Australia, wasn't it? Because in the UK, you had May versus Corbyn. May expected to trounce Corbyn, but then ultimately just scraping over the line and damaging herself along the way, and therefore uh, she departed not really entirely of her own choosing, let's be honest. Very similar parallel there to Bill Shorten almost getting there and Malcolm Turnbull underperforming and the result damaging Malcolm Turnbull and him not lasting until the following election. Then, of course, Scott Morrison wins an election. Not It was one that few thought he could. This was a little different than that because Corbyn was even worse than Bill Shorten on a host of issues we don't need to go into. But once the electorate in the UK had more time to consider Corbyn and some of his radical views as opposed to necessarily radical policies, which was how Shorten was seen, they just decided, you know what? Boris is a bit out there, but we're going to go with Boris anyway because better the devil you know uh, and he's less offensive even if a lot of people that voted for him perhaps saw him as a bit of a buffoon. It strikes me that the British Labour Party has learned, well, will they learn the lesson, but they've certainly been given the lesson that ultimately the system by which the elected representatives choose their own leader is more likely to to lead to electoral success because twice uh, Corbyn lost by large margins, Mm. challenges on the numbers of his own MPs by large margins, but then was rescued by the fact that the Labor Party over there has a system by which the members get a vote, and he won that one by large margins. So the activist membership base was sustaining him, even though the professional political class within the Labor Party was looking at him going, this guy is nuts. Yeah, and, and it's 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 a non-compulsory voting system uh, over there as well, uh, and it doesn't have preferential voting like we do over here. Those two factors are just interesting of themselves to, to to look at some of the differences in a first-past-the-post system where people can choose not to turn out and vote. But Jeremy Corbyn was also interesting because he was just prepared when his own parliamentary colleagues didn't want him, and he had shadow ministers at one point resigning en masse. He was prepared just to thumb his nose at them all and just go to the people's vote, and that is to say the vote of party members, and then, of course, win that popular vote and therefore hang on. But, of course, those people might turn out to vote for him, sure, but they're a microcosm of the electorate. You lose the middle. I mean, he had a, a policy of getting rid of private schools, banning private schools. I mean... How do you win? I mean, there are ideologues who think you should get rid of private schools, but in an area of choice and other kinds of mm. things, um, quite apart from the, the, the simple calculation that there are so many people who have got kids in private schools in the UK uh, and they're not all, um, you know, old-style Tories sending their kids off to Eton. They might have all kinds of other reasons. You're oh, never, yeah. never going to get those well, votes. And, I mean, And just think practically, Hugh, like if you've got your kid or kids in a private school even if philosophically you can see the egalitarian value in a process of removing private schools and having one system that therefore lifts all boats and all the rest of it, even if you can philosophically see the value of that, if you're looking at your kid in a private school right now and you're thinking practically, hang on a second, even though I love the theory of that, in practice, my kid's going to get dislocated from their school. The process is going to be messy. It's the difference between theory and practice. You know, there's a lot of things that in theory someone might think is a good idea, which in practice they're going to have a problem with. In theory, the egalitarian in me thinks it's a great idea to abolish inheritance. You know, if we, if we, Australia likes to call itself an egalitarian country, if you abolished inheritance, then that only helps with that. In practice, though, 
who wants to lose their inheritance. Uh, in practice, a lot of people find a way around losing their inheritance, and that's why even inheritance taxes, which have some merit, are often not embraced, particularly by countries that have already got rid of them. So it's the big difference, isn't it, between theory and practice. Bill Shorten found the same thing, the theory of franking credits uh, and what sounds as the right thing to do versus what becomes it versus the practice of change, which can scare people. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, was a theorist on this, and that was the least of his problems. You know, throw in some of the anti-Semitism and the attacks around that. I mean, he was he was someone that was very radical. But let's talk about Boris, though, because he's who... He's the winner. He's the winner. Uh, with Boris there, what do you think? Is Brexit now going to happen, or do you think that well, it's it more complex than that? It has to happen. Um, you know, Boris has has made himself essentially a slogan, uh, a slogan with a bad haircut. There could still but, be MPs, though, that uh, try to block it. You know, not, I mean, a lot of it becomes a numbers game. Does he have the authority to basically push them aside now? Well, there are hu- well he does have an enormous authority, mm. not that like winning your own election, but uh, and there are huge issues to go now as to what does Scotland do, where exactly do the lines get drawn between Northern Ireland and, and Britain? Is there going to be effectively a customs border in the Irish Sea? How the hell are they going to do all of this? So it's not as if all of that is over, but... But, you know, in a democracy, there's nothing like winning your own election. Uh, What's interesting is that Boris Johnson is a man who has um, a very loose relationship with the truth. Uh, Goes back to his days when he was writing uh, as a journalist Mm. where he would make shit up (laughs) and publish it in The Spectator. Other people knew that it was bollocks. It was entertaining. This has been well reported in in Britain and picked over. Mm. And then in... in, um, in office, he was, he, you know, once he got to the to, to the to the national parliament, he was the, the mayor of London, of course, for a long time. But once he got in there, he was a party to those completely false statements about what getting out of Europe would mean in terms of the floods of money that would mm. come into Britain that would all be used on the national health, complete bollocks, and so many other things. And so, what we see there, and we look across the Atlantic to the United States, is this question: the question that was raised essentially by Trump initially, and that is that. Will the electorate tolerate someone when it is clear to them that they are poor with the truth? And with Boris Johnson, the answer is a resounding yes, they will. Mm. And that is probably historically seriously interesting because if you're a professional politician or trying to get things done, you can look at Trump. I wouldn't rule Trump. Out from being re-elected by any means. Not at all. In 2020. Although I can put the kiss of death on that and say that he's home and hose. He's home and hose, that's right. Uh, but Boris Johnson is, um, he's, you know, he's hes made it as a man loose with the truth. How does that apply to Australia? You know, <laughs> but, you know, you look at a Barnaby, for example, who tried that approach, crashed and burned. Um, so there's a perception well, that... Well, Scott some- Morrison's not loose with the truth. He just doesn't answer questions and he's too good a politician to be loose with the truth. I mean, he he makes mistakes and I think I called him out on one around renewables and there's been plenty of others that I've seen people, you know, mashing up online, but he's a little bit different to that. I think Boris is much more flagrant in his abuse of the truth. I think Scott Morrison is just better at not answering questions. Yeah. Again, you come back to that question of the compulsory voting in Australia mm. and uh, whether we are going to be protected in some way. Well, the consequence for us is we wind up with generally fairly dull politicians, even those who are lauded over time like John Howard. 
um, was seen as being dull. He was a much sharper operator than that, but let he me, was let perceived me, let me as dull. Put you on the spot. Uh, I haven't got an answer myself, so feel free to have radio silence to this question. Uh, who who are politicians in this country? We can only pick people that are already in there. Although maybe people outside of the parliament that might have a crack. If we had non compulsory voting uh, that you think might come to the fore, you know, and and be genuine contenders for high office who aren't that now because they're a little bit too maverick. Sure. So what my assessment is is that when you don't have compulsory voting, you tend to lose the apathetic middle. Mm. And so what you would tend to see is, uh, you know, a a guy like Fraser Anning, for example, a thoroughly despicable character, uh, judging by his parliamentary performances, um, would have a better chance to get up um, or a Pauline Hanson might Hansen go more, be more, more mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you can you can build the extremes, and that would be also uh, possibly more radical Greens or other kinds of people would have a better chance to get in there because numerically, if you've got people who are active and will 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 trudge through the snow or bushfires to vote for you, uh, then they're and- they're really strong votes. Whereas the apathetic will will not. And so I think what you're less likely to get is the dull shortens and somewhat dull Scott Morrisons rising up there and people will have to be those who can get out their base more vigorously. And the reason it's hard to find the names, I think, because I'm still, while you're talking, trying to think of names in the parliament who would fall into that category within the major parties, and I'm not sure who they are. One of the reasons I think it's hard to find those names is because the system permeates, doesn't it? So most, if not all, of the personnel that are in the parliament for the major parties are products of that compulsory voting system, which includes preferential voting as well. And therefore it's not just the leaders that are dull, but it's the whole, the whole grouping essentially, because they're all products of that system. Everyone thinks that they can be the first among equals uh, and become, become leader. The other factor, which is really interesting, I think as a comparison, if you moved away from compulsory voting to non-compulsory voting, and this brings in your Hansons, I think is a better example is is the provincial elections, state-based elections, you are more likely to see those more radicalised sides of left or right get in. So you think back to Hanson and how well she did back in 98 in Queensland. If they had non-compulsory voting and if they had first-past-the-post voting, she may well have won government. And if she was running at the state level, uh, which of course she wasn't, then she might have been even more likely uh, to to get in as leader with a host of people in a first past the post system who bother to vote who otherwise wouldn't in a non compulsory voting system as well and you lose the middle and you possibly elect uh, one nation as you know the government in Queensland and then you're off and running aren't you then all of a sudden there you go and and the Greens in uh, a place like well certainly in Tasmania they've joined into government at the provincial level, but even in somewhere like Victoria, you can imagine them becoming much more robust in a non-compulsory voting system in some of the inner city seats, New South Wales as well. Uh, they already have a presence, but it would it would grow. It would elongate. So as a political professor, as indeed you are, PVO, would you assess that Australia has done better through compulsory voting than not? Absolutely. And it's really funny, you know, you go to international political science conferences they're not junkets, you know. They're, they're no, not they're junkets. Important no. affairs, but yeah. you you go to those, and people around the world, academics, politics, academics around the world, are genuinely flabbergasted. They don't use that word, but they're flabbergasted by Australia thinking that there's anything normal about preferential voting and compulsory voting as two things that we completely take as normal. Now, not all states have compulsory preferential voting, but they all have. Com- they almost all have preferential voting. 
But the compulsory voting is the one that you just see people around the world outraged by it. I think Belgium has it as well. It's one of the reasons Matthias Cormann fitted in so well when he came to Australia from Belgium. But most other countries, almost all other countries, do not have compulsory voting. I think we've it's served us very, very well. Yes, you get some apathetic people that can decide elections who aren't really paying attention, but you get that anyway. People that turn up and vote who aren't apathetic aren't necessarily any better informed than the apathetic. Let's not kid ourselves that activists are better informed than the mainstream who might be a little apathetic. So that all irons itself out. Uh, what you do get, though, is a broader mix. You get the centre, and very importantly, as well as getting the broader mix and as well as getting the centre, you enhance the democracy by legitimising the government. There's nothing more illegitimate than a president or a prime minister who wins perhaps with less than 50% of the turnout vote, but in the areas that they needed it, when that turnout is less than 50% in and of itself. Absolutely. I think Ronald Reagan was elected at one stage with 38% of the population and he was a success. Yep. And and Donald Trump, you know, he, he got less than 50% of the turnout vote against Hillary Clinton, but the turnout wasn't high either. Uh, you know, less than 50% of Americans bothered to turn out to vote, generally speaking, same in Britain. So you delegitimise your elected leaders, which then increases cynicism, and you're doing it all in the context of a non-compulsory voting system, which guts the centre. And builds up that horrible partisanship of which there is uh, probably too much. Uh, and on that note, um, is that polyester um, sweater that you're wearing there, is it, is it starting? I'm getting static out. That hat looks itchy. Yeah, it, is, it is itching a bit. Uh, PVO, till next time. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Oh, don't forget, we've got our... Uh, oh, yeah. We've got uh, the next time we hit 30, which is a, quite a milestone. It is. And it's a year in review. A year in review and a year looking ahead. 2020 is going to be a hell interesting year. The United States, for one thing, but uh, elsewhere as well. We're going to have a look at all of that. We're going to see all the things that Rudd foresaw in his 2020 summit no doubt come to fruition. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Kate Blanchett. Um, till then, PVO. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.